Hello and welcome to the special edition of The Stack, full of great interviews we did in 2022. From the new Spanish interiors title, how Brazil's largest daily covered the election, the wonderful Marina Hyde, and one of my favorite photographers, Stephen Klein. And of course, the iconic sight and sound list with the best films of all time. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We always like a new title here on The Stack, and in 2022, Manera was born. Uh, the magazine is by editor Enrique Pastor, he's the former editor of AD Spain. He's back with this wonderful new quarterly magazine called Manera. He tells me more about it. Manera, it's uh, the meaning in Spanish, it's a way of doing things. And we say that after the lockdown and everything that's happened in the world, so we think that it's a new manera to look at the interiors, to think, to imagine how we want to live. So we've been a long time at homes and we've had time to reflect on that. So we think that there is a new manera of living houses and we want to have a new manera to tell how people is living and how to bring color or to bring optimism or to feel well at home. So that's the main focus that we have in the magazine. And even it's a Latin word, so we are based in Spain and we have a strong link with Latin America. We will have editors there. So the main focus of the content in the magazine will be Spain and Latin America, and then we will embrace everything that is creative outside. But we don't want it to look like any other interior design magazine that are mainly focused in the US or in France that they're doing very well, but there's a lot of talent, especially in Latin America, that people is not knowing that. So we want to be the platform to introduce this new talent and this new creativity. And by the way, just checking, which city in Spain are you based? Is it Madrid? Yes, yes, we're very lucky to be wonderful Madrid. Madrid wonderful Madrid. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's that the, there's everything happening here at this time. And as I mentioned, the link with Latin America is very strong because there's people coming for living and work here. And we have professionals just moving to Latin America to work. And, and we're building a, a very beautiful bridge between the two areas. So it's, it's nice to be here. I love the focus on Latin America because I think, especially you being Spain, you have this something very special. You have even a common language with so many countries in South America that are also interested, you know, in, in design interiors. And I think that's a great way and also to promote Spain because, as you said, you know, we do see a lot of houses from the US, from France. You know, it even ends up looking samey. And I think it's nice. And I think it's part of your career as well to showcase the best of Spanish talent as well. Yes, of course. And we think that we can, it's a very strong word to say, but we would like to become the ambassadors of a way of doing things and a way of living that can link with Spain, with the Mediterranean area, and also with Latin America. That, as you mentioned, there's a strong creativity happening there, and, and we would like to, to tell that. 
What can you tell us about the magazine itself? I know it's going to be a, a quarterly. Will it be like a lot of pages? And what can you reveal? Because I know when is the first issue supposed to be out? It will be in September, mm -hmm. probably beginning of October. And the idea of publishing a quarterly, it's because it will allow us to arrive to the newsstands with more pages. And we will have a strong focus because we want to link the house and everything that surrounds us with the cultural panorama. We will include also, I mean, like short fiction stories from writers inspired by iconic houses of Spain and Latin America. And we will give space for reading and for reading nice stories. And, and I mean, we will give enough content just for you to enjoy the magazine for three months. So, but we don't stop on the print because we would like to be on digital too. We would like to produce good content for, for the digital, just using the new language that it's sometimes it's very different to the print. And we'll have the website, a weekly update with five very nice, long quality stories. Then we will send newsletter to, we will do podcasts and we will use some of the social media just to be in touch with our audience. Thank you very much, Enrique. And this year was very special to me as well. I spent some time in Brazil covering the elections there as well. And I had the pleasure to meet Sergio Davila. He's the editor-in-chief of Folha de São Paulo, one of Brazil's largest daily. And he tells me more about how he covered the election this year. Yes, it's a very busy election season. We are in a polarized country right now, but I don't think that's the main issue. Polarizing elections are not necessarily new in Brazil. I mean, Dilma Rousseff against Aécio Neves was a very polarized election. Even if you go way back, Fernando Henrique Cardoso against Lula was a very polarized election. The difference in this season is that we have an incumbent, we have a president, a sitting president, President Bolsonaro, is very aggressive towards the professional journalism and the press, the independent press. So it's a very difficult and we have to, it's very delicate to cover this election, mainly because of this aggressiveness that comes from the incumbent, comes from the president, the sitting president. And, and even perhaps because of Folha's independence, because Bolsonaro many times during his government, he singled out Folha as well, saying, wow, this newspaper. Uh, and, and, and I have actually, we're sitting in a room close to a lot of the historic phone pages. There's one from the 28th of June, 2020, where Folha defended democracy, actually. So it's interesting that you felt the need to do that in a way as well, right? At the same time, it's, it's new for us and it, it, it's sad that we, you have to remember people decades after the end of dictatorship that there's this value, this most important value called democracy and that we support democracy and you should too. This decision came from a fact that it was astonished for us. We did a poll and we had access to, to data where more than 50% of Brazilian population wasn't born during the dictatorship. So dictatorship was a thing of the past, a memory that they don't have. So 
we felt the necessity to remind this or to enlighten these people saying, this is dictatorship, this is democracy. This is why democracy is way better than dictatorship. Because, of course, what was the main reason for us to do that? President Bolsonaro is a supporter of dictatorship. He always says good things about the, the, this terrible period of time in Brazil. So we felt that the need to say to people is wrong. This is not true. This is uh, the horrors of dictatorship. And this is why democracies, uh, as Churchill said, that it's not the perfect system, but it beats all the alternatives. And it was a success. We did an online course for youngsters, and it was a, a free course. And we have almost 200,000 people doing this course on democracy. Wow. It was a eight session class, and we had this huge amount of people watching this course. And it was uh, Democracy 101, the basics of democracy. And how was the dictatorship in terms of economic performance, in terms of personal freedom, torture and, and everything. So it was important for us to do that. At the same time, important for us to do that and sad to do that because we thought these are something that belong to the past, but no, unfortunately, you have to bring it to this discussion. Thank you, Sergio. Moving on now to Guardian columnist Marina Hyde. She released a new book with a selection of her best columns. The book is called What Just Happened? Dispatches from Turbulent Times. Marina Hyde, a pleasure to welcome you here at Monaco 24. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, because I'm a reader of your columns, so it's fantastic. I think it's a fantastic idea for the book. Were you? I mean, how did you feel, you know, to kind of reread all your previous columns? Because this book is kind of a compilation of your more recent ones since 2016, well, right? Let me be clear with you. The fir uh, first <laughs> of all, I couldn't remember writing huge amounts of it because there's just been so much news over that. I mean, I start this column about a week, this, sorry, this book, about a week before the Brexit referendum in 2016. And then we had, obviously, the Brexit referendum, we had Trump, we had Theresa May, her weird snap election that plunged the country into complete chaos because she didn't have a majority anymore, the kind of agonising attempt to get a Brexit deal, Boris Johnson, a pandemic... And I would love to say that we were meeting on a day that we could just look back on all of this and say, gosh, it was so chaotic for years, but here we now are in a period of sublime calm. But since the advent of Liz Truss, I have to say that, if anything, things have become more chaotic. And the Queen and so many other things so have changed. So many other things. The war. You know, yeah, and I, I mean, you know, there was sort of, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all these massive movements. I mean, it's just been a sort of tumultuous time, really. And so, yeah, when I was looking back at lots of these columns, I thought... My God, I mean, there were so many things that I sort of hadn't quite remembered and thought, God, did that really happen? I called it what just happened because I still react with sort of shock to the fact that some of these things really did occur. But there they are. They did happen. And I wrote a column about them at the time. It's such a pleasure reading your columns because sometimes you literally are writing what a lot of us are saying about this, the absurdity of everything that's happening as well, because it's a mixture of there's, of course, lots of humor in it as well. But but also like, well, actually, it's kind of serious. too. Yeah, I mean, the stakes are always really high mm. and they've never been higher, really. And that's always something I, you know, I try to use humor because I think it's a really good way to reach people. And, there, you know, there are some 
people that I read who I think, God, you're making such great points, but I slightly feel like I'm being shouted at. So I try to sort of use humour to reach the reader, but I'm always on the side of the reader. I'm always someone who wants to say... I share your despair. I share the fact that you threw your hands up at the television when you watched the news last night. Because I think ultimately, I'm very interested in people and characters in the way I write about lots of these things. And I suppose a lot of comedy comes from characters often failing to enact their plans or just failing to manage events. But I suppose the people I'm most interested in are the people to whom politics is done. And I think a lot of us have felt over the last few years that politics has been sort of done to us rather than in our name. (laughs) One thing that you mentioned here in the book, I believe in the introduction, you say people say people are tired of politics, but actually they're clearly not, right? I mean, it's quite the opposite in a way. But you can't be tired of politics. That's the trouble. I mean, in the old days, you know, and I'm not even going back that much time, you were able to quite cheerfully ignore the news for two weeks, just quite cheerfully sort of check it and think, oh, I see that's what's going on there. Over this period, it's become a thing where you have to sort of check in every day. What does it mean for, you know, people were watching BBC Parliament Channel on these mad sort of Brexit votes thinking, will it ever be over? Now, you know, as I say, the stakes get ever higher. Now people are thinking about their mortgages, their livelihoods, the cost of living, which I always find a sort of rather affectless phrase, but which is a sort of terrifying phrase. You know, it's the price of existing. The stakes are hugely high always. So it's quite difficult not to think about politics. Ideally, we should all be in situations where we don't have to think about politics. (laughs) This is the mark of a calm period where tolerance and prosperity are increasing rather than a chaotic period. However, we are not in one of those. And there are some moments in the book, I mean, besides the dispatches, there's some touches of kind of a more showbiz stories in a way. But, But politics and showbiz, they are quite, as you mentioned before, started the interview they're quite interconnected in a way right I think you're totally right I used to do a showbiz column in the Guardian Mm. called Lost in Showbiz and I think that was the column I first kind of found my voice in and I was writing about celebrity culture in the 2000s when it was kind of the only subject with the possible exception of like Islamic fundamentalism there were these two like you know it was crazy it was an explosion of celebrity culture and so it was a great time to be writing about it but I kind of got the voice in that column first. But now I sort of feel that politics itself has become a sort of reality show with these ridiculous, preposterous characters emerge who are kind of ill-suited to the top. You know, the the train wrecks. People used to write a lot about train wrecks and we've gone back and looked at that way of covering celebrity culture and thinking it was awful the way people wrote about Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan or whatever it was at the time. But I have to say that I think the kind of train wreck trope has moved into politics. I mean, I watch like lots of cabinet ministers and think... I mean, I watched Kwasi Kwarteng do a U-turn this morning and thought, this is like pure train wreck stuff. I feel like I'm watching a genuine train wreck. Here. I saw that as well yeah. this morning. It, yeah. It is a bit mad. Uh, Marina, what's your process of writing uh, a dispatch? You know, because they're, 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 they're quite they're quite long. They're, they're lovely pieces. How, how many words each one, more or less? I, I mean, they're always about a thousand words, mm. sometimes a bit longer and sometimes a tiny bit shorter, but generally about a thousand words. My process, it feels it comes from the heart. I don't it, know how to describe that. It comes that. from the heart and I'm on a deadline. This is, this is the reality. It, journalism is a trade and not an art, and I'm very kind of strong on that. I get up very early in the morning and I open a Word document and I never start at the beginning. I just like write some random random things that I'm thinking in and I kind of move them around and I cut and paste them and out of this kind of soup this primordial mess staggers something now it might be a hopeless column or it might be a half decent column but something eventually staggers out within two or three hours and I really never know in many ways what I am thinking 
until I've gone through the process of writing about it. That's definitely something I feel. I don't sit down with some kind of thesis that I then think, I oh, know I must set this down from the opening paragraph and conclude in the end. I don't write like that at all. It's actually the act of writing that helps me think what on earth I think about half this stuff. Thank you very much, Marina. And it's been a year of a lot of great guests here on The Stack. And one of them is the iconic photographer Stephen Klein, who just published his first monograph. Let's have a listen. First of all, Stephen, such a pleasure talking to you. I am a big fan. I've been following your work for years. And before we talk about the book, I mean, what I like about your work, it's so cinematic. It gives you the sense of fantasy, which I have to be honest, when I read magazines, I mean, not all of them, I'm missing a little bit of that. So this book's almost like a tribute to all those amazing imagery that you've done as well. Is that, is that what you want to portray in your work, uh, the sense of fantasy? Yeah, I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something and to provoke ideas in different ways. I think just to show a dress on a page is kind of like you could see that online today when you watch a fashion show. So part of the reason why I did the book is I think a lot of the magazines today aren't doing journalistic and idea stories that have narratives attached to them or bigger ideas. So I thought it was a good time to put the collection of work together in one book. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful, I mean, people have to say it's a heavy book as well. There's plenty of pages in here. I think it's more the papers, a good quality paper, so it's heavy, but it's not like a gigantic book. So I think it's heavy, but reasonable to carry. And coated as well. So even some of the pictures, you can feel it. Yeah, what Uh, I wanted to do is I like the idea, especially the one on the cover, to feel more like photographs. And I actually used a lot of my original prints. So it's not, it's like... Through the years of working, I worked with film and then went to digital, and a lot of images are produced from film stills. The one on the cover actually is from a film camera, a digital film camera, for a project I did called Fetish Heels for the Brooklyn Museum. So that's an actual still. So there's many different formats, and on the paper, it's actually varnished, so it looks like as close to a real photograph as possible. I love that. But Stephen, compared, you know, to photo shoots these days, I mean, in the past, there was much higher budgets as well, right? I mean, how how do you think it changed? Why this kind of the sense of exuberance a little bit have been lost in a way? Partially, I think, because of social media and the Internet. I think because so many fashion brands are advertising online that magazines no longer have the amount of money that's generated from advertising. So therefore, the budgets have been cut. A lot of staff as well from magazines have been cut. Most of the people that I've worked with in this book have also probably been laid off or somehow not working for the magazines anymore. So I think that has an effect on the budgets. I mean, budgets were always difficult to manage because a lot of my shoots are big productions, but I think even now it's even more difficult than before with photographers' fees, with... uh, production expenses and and overall ideas, people will still want, they're asking me to do the same pictures I did before, but for, you know, 90% less in production value. And that can be, that can be. It's difficult. Yeah, it is. And I have something very curious. You have this relationship with stars and, you know, let's talk about Madonna because that's the 
I mean, one of the first kind of works that, that you've done that, I, you know, I felt fascinated, still inspires me to this day. I can see a picture and say that's a Stephen Klein picture. But when you're working with someone like Madonna, you know, she's she knows what she's doing. She she's you know, she knows exactly her, her imagery, how she wanted to be. How do you put actually your kind of stamp on someone like Madonna, for example? Because um, it feels very Stephen Klein, but also Madonna, you know? I think well, the first time we worked together we collaborated, but it was uh, basically she walked into my studio. We had a lot of exchanges and communication about the idea of her doing ecstatic process. But I think after our first shoot, it was very successful. We, She gained a lot of trust from me, and I think that we became good collaborators because without the trust and without the love in anything you do, I think that it's not possible. So the thing is, is that it's interesting because people, when they've walked into my studio and that aren't so connected with her or her image, they'll see a picture of her and not even know it's her. And to me, that's successful because the thing is, I do try to take the celebrity out of celebrities. And I think mm. even in the book, when I edited the book, there were several pictures, one in particular from Rio, actually, mm -hmm. that was on the cover of W that was actually showing her face full, you know, a full face picture facing the camera. And I showed her the pictures for the book and a lot of the pictures from the book are from her back. And she actually took that picture out and she said it was too commercial. So I think she has a, she's a great admirer of great photography and fine art photography and she appreciates good work. And I think that in that way she's a great collaborator with me because we both have a love for photography and filmmaking. And you mentioned the real shoot. For me, that's very iconic because she was playing a character there as well. You know, this kind of, this lady who goes in Rio, it's quite, it feels very decadent, you know. It doesn't necessarily need to be Madonna in a way, but, you know, she was playing, and she was yeah, being an actress well, there, right? Yeah, it was based on a movie with Jean Moreau. It was based on a, a role in a film, a French movie that we based that character on in Rio. Stephen, at the beginning of your career, was there a magazine that you started doing your work? How, how did you kind of get into the scene? Um, I, I actually had my first opportunity to work for Dior Cosmetics because a campaign had been uh, rejected. And I was in Paris and I got an opportunity to shoot the campaign for Dior Cosmetics. And that's how I began. After that, I started working for Italian Vogue with Franco Sassani and... From there, I went to American Vogue and, and W, and, and that's kind of how it rolled out for me. Thank you very much, Stephen. Finally on the show, Mike Williams from Sight and Sound magazine. He came to the studio to talk about the magazine's new design, which is wonderful, and the latest list of the greatest films of all time. Let's have a listen. Literally everywhere, people are talking about the new number one. That just shows kind of the power of this poll. I mean, I think it's, in a way, quite unique among this type of polls. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. Mm. Like it was, again, to go back to when I arrived, it was something that I could see looming on the horizon. It mm. felt distant enough to be something to work towards, as like a bit of a line in the sand of where we were as a magazine. But really quickly, probably to do with COVID and then having our big redesign project. 
I felt like I put my head down to get the redesign done, lifted it up, and all of a sudden it was time to do the poll, and it just really came upon us. And in those moments of putting it together and polling a whole world of film critics and the whole world of filmmakers, you know that this is a big deal already just from being a reader, but when you're in the thick of it and you really get to understand how much this means to people and how much it sets the rhythm of what film discourse will be for the next 10 years and how the results of this poll, they don't just have an impact in that they get people talking for a week. They have an impact in they actually change deep perceptions of what is the film canon and what are the works that have resonated in the past you know the challenges to what has faded and why the the reasons behind new things emerging it's so huge and the interest in it announcement on thursday was just incredible the the bfi website crashed because so many people were trying to come to it it's like record traffic on the site all the advanced copies of the magazine have basically sold out already. We were one of the number one trending topics on Twitter. There's a sort of subsection of Twitter, which I'm sure you know, called Film Twitter, basically, yes. <laughs> which is an interesting place to observe any sort of discourse on film. And Film Twitter is definitely on fire right now in a mostly good way. And it's, it's just amazing to see how much these results matter and just the tone that they set for the conversation, it's uh, incredible, really. And for me, this list serves as, as guidance. And I think that this year's number one, uh, more than ever, I've got to be honest with you, Mike, I haven't seen actually Gene uh, Dillman. I've seen, I've heard about the film. But, you know, looking at the list, I'm the kind of person who say, you know what, I actually must watch in the, in the coming months. I'm sure there will be quite a lot of people actually like that as well. Yeah, I think that's what's quite amazing about it is that when we first started the list, the first time it was held, the poll was in 1952 and 67 people voted, which I, I imagine in 1952, that felt like a lot of people. They probably felt that that was polling, you know, a really wide range of opinions. And it gradually, as these things tend to do, anything that is, you know, annual or, you know, like the World Cup is on now, every time the World Cup is on, it always has to be bigger and better than last time. And that's been the idea with the poll is every 10 years, whoever's in control of it always wants to make it bigger than the last one. And for various reasons, you know, the obvious one is for the sense of like occasion. But in 2012 and now again in 2022 the main reason for making it bigger was to make it feel much more representative and inclusive of a wider range of opinions experiences just you know nationalities ethnicities just having a much more representative voice and I got a sense over the last few weeks that there were people maybe in that sort of film twitter space who thought that us increasing the number of voters from like 800 to 1600, that there might be a sense that there'd be a dumbing down of the list in some way. And the fact that the exact opposite has happened, really, you know, there's no, you can't call this anything other than a really authentic list and an authentic representation of the different movements around previously underheard voices in film and how momentum has coalesced around certain things where there have been glaring omissions in this list for quite a long time and now you see things starting to emerge because there's so much more access to work than ever before you know people can amplify and share stories much more easily now and that the effect that's had the influence that's had on people's diversity of their own experience and their own choices 
just seeing that manifest in it's a really exciting number one but it's an incredibly exciting top 10 you can cut it anyway but if you look the top 50 it's crazy that like we've got like a top 250 ready to publish in january and at the lower ends there that's where it gets really interesting when you just see all the different things the different nationalities coming through so yeah i, I feel this is a really democratic top 100 and it just shows the really like highlights the sort of difference in culture and opinion that's manifested over the last 10 years. And it's certainly, oh my God, it's certainly not dumbed down in any way or form because you do, of course, you have a, an exciting number one, you know, a little bit more experimental, something perhaps some people even didn't know, but there are some classics in there that everybody knows. So I think it's a genuine, healthy mix. You know, Vertigo is still number two, for example, right? Yeah, I think that's it when you say you feel that you will now want to go and see that film yeah i think that will be the same impact and actually seeing things like in that top 10 having citizen kane and vertigo both still in the top three and seeing things emerging you know kind of more recent classics like mulholland drive and in the mood for love i think it really shows that this is a hugely credible list and that the things that people may not have heard of that's not because they don't have value it's because you, they've just passed you by to this point and this list is now your opportunity to go and seek them out. It's, you know, it's not just a collection of opinions collated into a list. It's actually like the, probably the world's greatest watch list for any budding cinephile. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbnmonaco.com. You can always listen again to The Stack on monaco.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you, and it's my wish for all of you that enjoy listening to The Stack. It's ABBA. Happy New Year. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Now's the time for us to say